Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. I am Ferenc Lotto, an editor at Revdem, and today I have the pleasure of hosting three guests, Peter Oppor, James Mark, and Steffi Mahung. Welcome to the show, Peter, James, and Steffi. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great to have you at Revdem today. My three guests are the co-authors of a large and path-breaking collective monograph, which has been coordinated by James Mark and Paul Betts, and has just been released under the title Socialism Goes Global, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the Age of Decolonization. It is presented as the first book to provide a wide-ranging overview of the relationship between Eastern Europe and the non-European world in the 20th century, and a book that offers an alternative history of the Cold War and of non-capitalist globalization, primarily through the study of East-South encounters and interconnectedness. Now, I should say that James Mark is a history professor at the University of Exeter. Steffi Marung is the director of the Global and European Studies Institute of Leipzig University. And Peter Oppor is what we call a Tudományos Főmunkatárs, that is roughly translated as a chief researcher in contemporary history at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. I should also add that this collective monograph, which we are here to discuss today, has eight main contributors. It has been written together with Steffi, Peter, and James, and the already mentioned Paul Betts, also by Alena Alangir, Eric Burton, Bogdan Jakob, and Radina Vucetic. So it's a work of eight people. Now, this, this volume, Socialism Goes Global, focuses primarily on the relationship between Eastern Europe and the extra-European world in the age of decolonization, as I already mentioned. And you reconstruct and discuss a major chapter in global history, I would say, which has not really been written before, right? This, this is really a very original uh, work. Uh, East-South connections have rarely been studied uh, in detail. And I would also say they are not really part of popular consciousness in today's Central and Eastern Europe. So I was wondering whether we could perhaps start with the question of how you related to the existing historiography uh, when, you, when you launched this really massive endeavor to, to research all these various facets of these connections, you know, what, what in the end proved useful uh, in previous researches and very perhaps critical uh, towards what, what existed, what was, what was written in earlier years. And then last but not least, what motivated you to really focus uh, on, the, on the relationship between Eastern Europe and the extra European world in the age of decolonization? Well, thanks very much, Ferenc, for that really nice introduction. Um, so I'll start by saying a few words about what motivated us. I think it was clear to many of us that, you know, we wanted to start with the idea that the big global story of the 20th century is the story of empires and their ends, and that Eastern Europe is not really included in that global story. And certainly for the last generation or longer, histories of the region have turned towards national stories, the re-establishment of national narratives, particularly after the end of communism, um, or if they look beyond their borders, it's about um, reintegrating the Central Eastern European story into broader histories of Europe. 
So we wanted to go beyond that um, and to think about this relationship to global empire and its ends. I mean, of course, end of empire stories are absolutely central to the rise of the region's nation states. We know the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, German Empire, Russian Empire, Ottoman Empire, the states that came out of those, recolonization during the Second World War, um, so-called liberation by the Soviets, a form of Soviet empire, the end of communism and Soviet influence in 1989 and so on. So there are all these stories about ends of empires that you know, are central to the region, but they tend to be written in regional terms rather than in global ones. So we really wanted to think about how those processes were interrelated um, with broader stories. You know, why did Eastern European nationalists fantasize about getting colonies? Why were colonies important to becoming European? Why did Eastern Europe get nation states after World War I when you know, the rest of the world um, did not? What was the relationship of that wave after World War I to the wave after World War II? What was the relationship between that post-war independence for African and Asian states and then the end of Soviet empire in Eastern Europe? And indeed, we can come right up till today, right? And ask what's the relationship of the present um, war on Ukraine or you know, war for liberation of Ukraine um, from Russian occupation? You know, is that a, a story of you know a war of delayed decolonization? How does that relate to other forms of um, liberation movement um, going on in the world, which is, of course is central to the dilemmas of many solidarity movements um, right now? So these kinds of interconnections we really wanted to explore. But just one, maybe just one final point. It of course has a political edge. This type of history, um, and it wasn't perhaps quite so clear when we started off on this road back in about 2013, so like almost a decade ago. But it's become very clear that um, Central Eastern European populist movements actually rather like their communist forebears deny this history of the region's entanglement with European colonialism. Um, and it allows them to make, for example, anti-migrant arguments, right, to say we didn't practice you know, violent empire outside Europe like Western Europeans did, thus we have no responsibility for types of migration from outside Europe now. And I think one job of the book is surely to show that these kinds of assertions are based on a form of ignorance, whether willful or accidental, um, and to really recover this very um, complex um, history of entanglement between um, the region and the extra-European world. Great, that's an excellent uh, introduction to the book and also uh, to our conversation, uh, of course. And I wanted us to explore uh, in, in a bit more detail some of the key actors uh, in this history and also the types of contributions uh, they have made. So maybe you could talk a bit about you know, which countries or in which exact areas did East-South relationships in the age of decolonization truly matter, right? What were some of the specific impacts of this East European engagement in what you call this alternative form of globalization, right? What, what, what were those areas that, that would really deserve to be highlighted here? And in connection with that, I think we could also discuss really quite a large question again, which is how different were these East-South relationships from those between the West and what used to be called uh, the third world, especially 
than observed from the point of view of the global south. I mean, did it really make a difference that these were different types of regimes when they acted in these various areas of the world? Okay, thank you very much, Ferenc. This is a, obviously a very broad question, uh, which actually the whole book tries to address in a way or, or not. Um, let me first try to highlight the, 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 the most important areas probably where uh, where 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 true or, or well significant impacts of of these relationships actually made uh, on uh, on on global relationships or especially on on uh, the global south and, and and probably one of the first or or one of the most important area um, in this respect was development and and especially the the initiation of uh, of a very large uh, project that uh, uh, that the Eastern European socialist states. Um, offered uh, to to various um, uh, global areas, especially in in Africa and 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 in the Middle East. And if we think uh, on on development, um, then then probably um, just 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 to turn back to your question on 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 possible periodizations or 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 which periods um, were the most um, um, important in in uh, in these relations then, then probably the late 1960s and 1970s when uh, when many of these great uh, uh, projects for example um investing in uh, in in uh, railway infrastructures and 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 water management in in the middle east in especially in syria and and iraq uh, where, uh, where where the Soviet Union, um, um, East Germany, but also many other countries in in East Central Europe, including also Hungary, uh, were very active in in planning, in in sending um, um, teams of specialists and and also working force uh, to these uh, countries and um, and regions to help them um, modernize uh, their their infrastructure. Such such projects were also important in in Northern Africa. Um, um, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, where, uh, where, where water, water management and water supply were obviously uh, one of the most um, kind of expected or desired um, ways of, uh, of investment that, that also the, the African uh, countries and African elites uh, demanded from, from their um, European, Eastern European uh, partners. Um, uh, but, but also some of the, some of the Kind of spectacular um, um, projects of uh, of construction uh, works. For example, um, the constructing of of a people's stadium or a national stadium in uh, in in Algeria, which which actually was uh, was 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 uh, in many way uh, in many ways the copy of the uh, Budapest situated uh, people's stadium that that had been constructed in 1950. So, uh, but but in in some other ways um, also um, um, health. Um, Assistance health programs were were very important, um, which uh, which uh, uh, I mean I mean the target countries um, included Africa, but also um, Southeast Asia was very important in that in that respect. Um, some some countries like East Germany, Hungary, Romania um, actually transported um, whole um, entire um, hospital facilities um, uh, to these uh, countries. Um, which uh, which originally had been initiated as part of part of military assistance um, uh, in, in in North Korea or in um, um, Vietnam, but then uh, later developed into kind of broader um, um, modernization uh, efforts, which uh, which these um, uh, countries um, offered to um, to the Southeast Asian partners. Also, in in uh, in urbanization or in urban urban planning. Um, 
um, Poland, um, Hungary, East Germany, Romania, Bulgaria, this, these, these countries also offered um, um, specialist expertise. So I mean, kind of intellectual um, work uh, related to, to urban planning, uh, uh, for example, in Nigeria, but also in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where, where uh, um, uh, the experiences of, uh, of, of, of cheap, massive housing uh, estates and, and, and planning of, of, of urban districts for, uh, for um, um, kind of uh, relatively um, um, under, underdeveloped or under, under modernized societies that then once again built on the previous experiences of, of, uh, of post-war socialist modernization projects in these countries were exported um, 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 to uh, most important to Africa, but also but also in, in Korea and in and in Vietnam, um, um, you, you you can find um, housing districts, entire housing districts um, that that uh, were set up by uh, by East German and Hungarian um, teams of, uh, of of construction workers. Um, 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 one one um, cannot forget the the uh, cooperation in, in in the military field which which also proved to be very important um, and, and had a large impact um, and not only in Vietnam and North Korea which uh, which were supported by uh, um, by 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 the entire bloc uh, during their their wars uh, um, during uh, the wars against the um, um, American uh, or, or post-colonial intervention against UN troops um, there were obvious differences. So, um, for example, the Soviet Union um, provided um, um, weapons, um, military technology, but also um, military specialists. Um, some some other, other other countries like Poland or uh, or Hungary um, uh, um, actually made great efforts in uh, in uh, in uh, providing um, help. Uh, for example, in uh, in uh, um, um, in 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 the in the medical or post conflict treatment of uh, of of the wounded uh, or, or setting up um, military hospitals in the field, um, which which actually was quite quite similar to what Yugoslavia offered uh, during the Algerian war, um, besides weapon weapons and uh, and, and military uh, specialization or also um, hospitals and, and, and medical treatment offered for, for Algerian um, national liberation uh, um, fighters back in, uh, in, in Yugoslav uh, territory. Um, and and, and one, one has to underscore that, that actually um, many of the modes of assistance and cooperation were not, not simply um, initiated by uh, the Eastern European elites or Eastern European um, countries or, or, or specialists, but what actually were, uh, were set up often the demand of um, of, uh, of of uh, African or, or East Asian um, 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 elites or, or leaders, um, and and that was actually um, driven by uh, by the idea that uh, uh, that that these countries or these elites um, expected um, contribution from uh, from Eastern uh, and Central and Eastern European socialist countries um, um, to their uh, to their kind of post-colonial ventures. Um, models and expertise on, uh, on well alternative models or expertise that that would um, uh, possibly enable them to to escape from uh, from previous colonial or or semi-colonial dependence. Um, and I think it's important to make a difference because in in, in Africa or in Southeast Asia, um, probably it is more important to to kind of eschew the 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 um, confines or limitations of of previous colonial dependence. While in in Latin America. Um, um, the, the understanding that that uh, that 
that the alternative models towards modernization, what, what socialist Eastern Europe um, might um, have been able to, um, um, to contribute to, um, were, were probably much more important because, because these, these countries were, uh, were, were seeking for, for alternative models that, that would help them to, um, um, to provide some, some more space of maneuver in, uh, in, in, uh, in the relationships towards the, um, the more, more economically or politically powerful um, Northern American, I mean, especially the United States. Um, so that's, that's, I think, is important to, to, to emphasize. And I'd just like to follow up on Peter's points about the fact that the motivation for these relationships didn't just come from Eastern Europe, but were often you know, from um, anti-colonial movements in East Asia, Middle East, Africa, um, and so on. So although the book itself is very much centered in the Eastern European archive, we try to bring in um, the voices of those from the African or Asian side of the encounter. And in particular, you know, really introduce critiques of what Eastern European developmental specialists, economists, archaeologists, heritage specialists, photographers, military specialists, all these different groups, you know, what they're all doing. And, you know, it's certainly the case that although support is often appreciated, we find the development of critiques of Eastern Europeans as, you know, are they as imperialist as the West? Are they actually white Europeans? What does this actually mean for this type of relationship? So we wanted to very much bring in those stories as, as well. And I think additionally, we wanted to ask how this encounter reshaped Eastern Europe too. Um, how the types of debates, the types of discussions, the types of encounter that were created by decolonization um, actually opened out whole new questions about development within the bloc itself and then contributed eventually, I think, to debates over the over the bankruptcy of the system eventually. So we very much wanted to see it as a two-way process, not just as a kind of Eastern European export story, which I think some, some literature rather frames it as. Uh, thank you so much for that, uh, Peter and James. That's a very rich uh, panorama, and I think it also makes it very tangible what we're talking about and why these stories really matter. We certainly want to return uh, to the question you just uh, mentioned, James, that this, of course, also contributes to the end of the state socialist regimes. But before we would, we would come to that, I wanted to ask you about something slightly different, because even though it is clear that most of the book really focuses on the state socialist, or if you wish, the Soviet communist uh, period, uh, you repeatedly underline that for a proper understanding uh, of this subject, you also need to know about developments from prior to uh, 1945 at least and and you have in fact placed a major chapter titled origins right after the introduction uh, to the book and this was uh, penned uh, by the two of you uh, James and Steffi so I'm turning to Steffi at, at this point because I wish to ask you know how you would describe the evolution of the key traditions in Eastern Europe that then become especially relevant in the age of decolonization. I mean, what kind of traditions were there uh, in this region of relating to the extra-European world and, and also in terms of attempts to define one's place and one's role in global history that you tackle in so much uh, substance uh, in the book? Um, and then also, of course, in connection with that, I think we could perhaps discuss uh, how the state socialist period perhaps impacted uh, it, it, it were perhaps impacted by these traditions and how they then also came to reshape them 
uh, to some extent. Yeah, thanks for this wonderful question. And maybe um, uh, the brief answer would be that there were more traditions that mm -hmm. one might guess. Uh, so that has been a, a repeated experience when writing the book and doing the research for it, that there was a richness to be discovered, uh, which was really also fun in, in sharing what we found in the archive. Um, Maybe before uh, getting uh, into um, your answer more deeply, the, just to, to hint at the, the rational for this particular chapter, which is probably not that obvious to uh, to be found. So at the beginning of this book, um, I think on the one hand, we wanted to to highlight the importance of chronologies when, when telling this story. Uh, so to go beyond the presentism that you also would find in current debates about where all this is coming from, but rather look into uh, broader chronologies of the 20th century in which Eastern Europe plays an important role, not as, so to say, the other and the exotic part of it uh, and the latecomer, but rather as, as being part of larger histories uh, of internationalism, larger histories of globalization that date back to the 19th century, that what you would find in global history narratives more broadly, but where Eastern Europe and East Central Europe is, is permanently left out of the story. Uh, and, and depicted as a latecomer to, to all of this. And we also wanted to highlight the role of different generations shaping this encounter. Um, and this is where the, uh, the pre-World uh, War II uh, period comes in definitely. Uh, and here we have to deal with a diversity of traditions, which we try to frame on the one hand as colonial fantasies, so part of the elites in the region that kind of envisioned themselves after the First World War as becoming part of colonial uh, projects more broadly. Um, at the same time, uh, the uh, very wide um, uh, landscape of anti-colonial, uh, anti-imperialist movements, but not necessarily only leftist or communist anti-imperialist movements, but also anti-communist anti-imperialist movements. And the this diversity to unearth this diversity and how this then fed into the different state socialist projects, that was quite tricky to, to disentangle. I was working more on the Soviet side of the story, which is very often depicted through the lens of the communist international that is uh, in its turn depicted as an instrument of geopolitics of Stalin, which is, it definitely was. Uh, but the more interesting story uh, of the communist international here is on the one hand to kind of contextualize it as part of broader internationalism that emerges at the beginning of the 20th century and competes with other international organizations and international networks on the one hand. And on the other hand, also to, to, to look into how the infrastructures and the kind of repertoires of the communist internationals were appropriated from outside of the Soviet Union. And how what we found, how very much uh, Soviet elites have been pushed by non-European elites to include thinking about imperialism and colonialism outside of Europe as being part of, uh, of a broader agenda of anti-imperialism uh, anti in communist terms. Um, so this um, the, the communist international beyond um, Stalinism is a very interesting field um, and that then also would contribute and that hopefully makes our book also interesting, not only for those who are working on Eastern Europe, but also for those who are working on African or Asian histories to look at um, this, uh, this communist uh, and Eastern European history as being part of African and Asian histories, actually, uh, where non-European actors had a lot to contribute. Uh, so that's what we try to focus um, on here. And when we look into the Soviet story, and when you ask for how the pre-war history has impacted the state socialist history, that's of course quite tricky 
because as, uh, as is obvious, uh, there's a rupture in the 1930s and 40s, not only due to the Stalinist terror, but also, of course, due to the Second World War that seems to uh, um, to mark a cesura here. Uh, but what we also see is uh, generations of, of people, of actors, scholars, intellectuals, um, uh, thinkers uh, who kind of uh, hide um, in the in the uh, times of the Stalinist terror and then resume their work once the war is over and once Stalin is dead under Khrushchev. Uh, and one of the interesting stories uh, of kind of an, uh, an east-south entanglement more broadly is when you look into how um, uh, Patyekhin, who was the director, uh, the first director of the Africa Institute at the Soviet Academy of Science, how he continued to work with um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who traveled not only in the 1930s and 40s to the Soviet Union, but came back in the 1960s uh, to work with uh, Soviet intellectuals and activists on uh, thinking about Africa more broadly, thinking about racism more broadly. So that's a story where you see those continuities beyond the geopolitical um, framework, which, and this, these tensions were quite interesting for us to, to address. If I can just come in as uh, Steffi's co-author um, on, uh, on the chapter on origins. I mean, I mean, one one other question we wanted to explore was the fact that we found very early on that, you know, anti-colonial cultures in post-war Eastern Europe were very, very powerful and went, you know, well beyond the reach of communist states. I mean, there were people who supported socialist internationalism, right? But there were also people who were anti-communists who also identified with Cuba or Vietnam for their own reasons, often because you know, the, the, the story of a small nation struggling against a great power was one with great resonance to them who, who you know, who saw themselves as fighting Moscow, right? Um, but that there were, you know, there was a broad anti-colonial culture. So partly, you know, where, where did that come from? And the Steffi um, hinted, I mean, part, part of that was actually bound up in histories of fantasies of Eastern European involvement in, um, around the world that Eastern Europeans had been excluded from the imperial project, but that they would have been superior colonizers. Often this fantasy, and you see this quite clearly in Poland, also in Czechoslovakia, this idea that because we have been colonized, we understand what being colonized is like, but we are also heirs to the European enlightenment, right? So we have a project to export at the same time. So this idea of being superior colonizers is kind of there. And decolonization is a moment when we can go out and do this. On the other hand, um, as, as Steffi was also um, exploring, there are, there are these very kind of powerful anti-colonial traditions. Eastern Europe has a, you know, an anti-colonial space like other spaces in Africa and Asia and elsewhere in, um, in the world. Um, and one thing, I mean, just, just to give one example, right? So we wanted to look at the kind of emergence of powerful solidarity movements with Africa. Now, interesting, this doesn't apply to the Soviet Union, which became much more provincialized as Steffi was exploring the 1930s. But in many countries, for example, Yugoslavia, Poland, you know, there were really profound emerging solidarity movements in the late 1930s for Ethiopia um, in response to Mussolini's invasion. And it's, and it's this kind of coincidence of Mussolini in Africa, and actually then the beginnings of um, Nazi occupation in Eastern Europe, in particular with the occupation of Sudetenland and then progressively um, Czechoslovakia, these events start getting put together. And more and more 
um, people start making these connections between Eastern Europe as seemingly a still colonizable part of the world and struggles going on elsewhere. And these kinds of solitude movements in many ways, you know, developed during the Second World War on the basis of this, on the basis of this kind of common anti-imperialism, anti-fascism. So these things are already there by the time that the communists come to power. Of course, the communists institutionalize them, they narrow them, um, they formalize them in all sorts of ways which many people find alienating, right? But these things are already there and it makes for a much, much more complex history of anti-colonialism under communism than you know, than we certainly thought when we started the project. Great. I think there are really additional layers of diversity and also of complications, right? We talked about how you were trying to write this book uh, to really pay attention to the two-way traffic between East and South. Uh, we're talking also about all these ambiguous relationships between what was there uh, before 1945 and what comes after. I think this is also an extremely interesting subject. But I also think that you know much of the, the book is, after all, a, a book that provides a regional coverage of Central and Eastern Europe via uh, the archives, as, as you mentioned, right? A lot of original materials are presented here for the first time. And that is, if you wish, a third layer of complexity, because, of course, we are talking about a very complex region, right, with many different languages, countries with different orientations. And I was wondering whether we could talk about that uh, a bit more, right? Your book obviously uh, includes all the uh, Soviet satellite states uh, in Eastern Europe, as they, as they used to be called. But also, of course, Yugoslavia uh, plays really quite a prominent uh, role uh, on its uh, pages. And then you draw really important uh, parallels uh, between these countries, but also do underline that cooperation between them was, was mostly quite limited, in fact. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, how you would look at uh, the differences uh, between them and how you would compare them uh, to each other, especially when you, when you would maybe focus on the uh, East Central European parts, so you know the GDR, Poland, maybe Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, and countries like Romania, uh, Bulgaria, or, or Yugoslavia, right? Do you see uh, certain differences there that, that you would care to highlight? And more generally, you know, what might account for what I think to a lot of our listeners uh, may come as a surprise to some extent that the Eastern Bloc did not quite function as a bloc at all and was in fact in many ways a, a, a realm where, where nation states uh, were the primary actors to, to a certain extent, even when they were acting uh, in the name of anti-colonial solidarity, right? Quite ironically, I, sh I should add. And, and on top of that, and again, this is of course something that Steffi already started talking about in her previous answer, would you care to just add a comment on, on how you see the role of the Soviet Union, which is obviously part of your story, it's part of your book, uh, but you do, not, you do not attach central importance to it and in fact highlight uh, that they did not determine uh, East-South relationships, maybe nearly as much as some people might imagine. Yeah, that was one of the tricky parts of, of co-authoring the book, um, because also that pertains to, to the language you would use, right? Are you talking about the, the blog, the camp, the, the satellite states, you know, all that kind of language that comes with uh, the Cold War tradition, finally. Uh, and yeah, absolutely right. What we try to do is to, to disentangle the blog. Um, so not only to talk about um, or to reflect on how those encounters have either contributed or problematized the emergence of something like a blog or a camp. And as you rightly highlighted, um, in some cases it has worked, but in most cases it has actually not worked because the national framework has been quite crucial and important also in this uh, East-South uh, interaction. 
um, and we try to highlight also the competition in the blog on different fields, uh, but also the division the of labor that comes with it. Uh, as well as the limits of um, a centralization from Moscow um, that is attempted, that there's the ambition is there. Uh, but in many cases, um, this is failing also due to not because, you know, there are those awkward partners in the bloc who would not follow the Soviet line, but also because from outside of the bloc, um, this uh, leading role was not always accepted. Um, and this is the second aim that we're, we're trying to follow is to, to pluralize also socialism, both within the bloc and outside the bloc, so more globally. Uh, and this plurality of socialist globalization projects, you would uh, you could say, uh, that I think made it so interesting for non-European uh, elites to you know, go for um, inspiration and shopping to cooperate with partners in the bloc. Uh, and as you already said, I mean, there is this diversity of, of states that come together in the socialist camp. And when you say GDR, Poland, Romania, Yugoslavia, that's a huge also uh, diversity of, of historical traditions and relations to empire that you would address here, right? So the GDR actually is a, uh, a follow-up of a former colonial power and that is part of uh, how the GDR elites are reflecting what they're actually doing uh, to think about um, I mean the, the the colonial past of the German Reich and how to define the GDR in this regard uh, as well um, and at the same time it's so to say it's a quasi-state right it doesn't exist in the eyes of the west um, but the cooperation with the global south is a way to to become a fully uh, recognized state here, while Poland, um, you know, highlights a, a longer tradition uh, of uh, being colonized itself, uh, being split, um, but at the same time, you know, bringing up uh, histories of Commonwealth um, statehood um, uh, that dates back, uh, uh, of course, uh, quite some time. But they they have this tension as well that James already mentioned to say we would have been, you know, the the better civilizers because we're the good ones. We know how it is to be to be colonized, and you find wonderful uh, resources here. How this this discourse of you know civilization uh, continues from the interwar period into the socialist times, but in different you know packet, uh, being packed in different ways. While you have Romania that declares itself to be uh, a third world country at UNCTAD, right? So that's there's another narrative of you know colonization that plays with uh, how this works under socialism. Uh, and then you have Yugoslavia, and this debate continues until today. If you go to a conference today, you will find as many opinions on the role of Yugoslavia as many Yugoslavia experts you have on that conference, at least that many opinions. And while some would say that was not socialism at all, others would say, yes, it was the real kind of socialism. So that's exactly the debate that is going on. So you have the non-alignment as another framework that comes in. Um, and you have clearly, uh, um, if you look at uh, Tito um, and uh, the, so to say, the, the ambitions of Yugoslav elites of the 60s and 70s, it's clearly a socialist project that is competing with the Soviet one. Um, and the Soviet case, again, is so interesting for its tensions it has, right? So you have, on the one hand, a reflection in the 1930s and the Soviet Union on how to do the better colonial project. Um, you have a, an, an agency that researches colonialism, how to do it better. Um, under the socialist or Bolshevik uh, headline, uh, and that then continues to become also, um, you know, a superpower, um, and uh, then later on also a, a super economic power that you know needs to differentiate between different parts of the world. Um, 
so here you and, and you know it just can open up the pandora's box here um but that's i think the provocation that we would like to put forward is that there's not this one story that begins at 45 and that is an export story or that this is a soviet story um so these simplifications that you also find again today so people should read our book also to understand what's going on today because it also explains why you know the this kind of competing globalization projects that have been emerging throughout the 20th century are now back on the table right so it's not an east-west thing only but obviously it's more about how to order this world um, and how to escape marginality or perceived marginality and the shared uh, marginalities or perceptions of marginality that's i think what also brings the global south and the global east together here I mean, to, to, to follow up what Steffi said, I mean, I mean, one of the surprising things to me was how our project became more politically resonant and relevant as the project continued. I mean, we saw some connections at the beginning, but they weren't to the fore. But, you know, as the 2010s went on, the kind of re-emergence of these alternative globalizing projects, um, you know, particularly with a completely new ideological patina, I mean, coming out of kind of anti-Western populism, I mean, now spearheaded by now spearheaded by Putin. I mean, actually, there's a kind of really interesting symmetry in the Soviet support for the Aswan Dam um, at the height of decolonization. And then, you know, they are now supporting um, Egypt's first nuclear first nuclear power station. But also, actually, our, our, our project became more kind of politically problematic, right? Because Russian Russian elites are you've seen this particularly over the last four to five years are increasingly mobilizing this history of anti-colonialism in order to try and build anti-NATO, anti-Western um, support in Africa um, and elsewhere. So they organize conferences on decolonization in Africa. They, um, uh, in, um, in Luanda, you know, sponsored a new memorial to Soviet support for um, for independence and so on. So this, you know, this this has a new kind of um, a new kind of resonance now. To return, if I can, to some of the themes that Steffi was was talking about. I mean, one one of the things we wanted to show, as Steffi was mentioning, was the kind of Eastern, often Eastern European rather than Soviet leadership. So one of the things we found was that, I mean, because the Soviets had become, as it were, provincialized in the 1930s, socialism in one country, Steffi mentioned before, the kind of the destruction, the, um, the killing of um, Soviet internationalists in the 1930s, um, that actually, you know, the Soviet Union was not in a great state to become a kind of anti-colonial internationalist power after World War II. Um, and, you know, and, and we write about how various people like Du Bois and others noted this and wrote and wrote about this after the Second World War. Indeed, actually, the Soviet Union tries to take Italian colonies after World War II, not in order, not as part of an anti-colonial project, but as part of a kind of superpower security issue. You know, so um, certainly there is there is no immediate commitment to that. But for but for the states of um, Central Eastern Europe, which you know have been occupied, colonized, if you want, during um, the Second World War, this idea of reaching out to a broader anti-colonial world makes much more immediate sense after World War II. And so initially, you know, this project is you know, partly driven from what we might see as the periphery of the bloc, um, not actually from the center. Of course, this becomes much more kind of formalized under Khrushchev in the late 1950s, but there's a much more complicated origin story um, going on here than Sovereign thought. It's not something directed from Moscow. The other point I wanted to make was that 
Um, yes, I mean, this is a series of national stories in many ways. And indeed, many people outside Europe, outside Eastern Europe, keep trying to, as it were, train Eastern European communist elites in how to be properly anti-colonial, right? If you really want to change the world, if you really want an alternative form of globalization, you have to start thinking in these different ways. And one of the ways they say is, of course, you need much more regional cooperation within Eastern Europe. Um, Raoul Prebisch, you know, who's the sort of founder, you know, or at least leading light of the kind of dependency theory after World War II, keeps complaining at the United Nations, this bloody second world bilateralism, he calls it, you know, you can't get them together to cooperate even on, you know, taking on the West. So there's, there's that story that's really interesting, but also this kind of competitive nationalism is in many ways also very attractive, um, you know, to newly independent African states, for example, that are trying to build homogenizing nation states, this kind of national offer from Eastern Europe appears actually very familiar, comforting and, 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 and appealing. So, so it works for a time, but I think only for a time, right? And when you get to the 1970s, and um, probably you know the book by Quinn Slobodian, um, Globalists, which explores just how successfully Western neoliberals created a kind of global order, um, which helped constrain nation states, and to work within this broader legal order to create what becomes kind of global capitalist globalization, this project really fails um, in the socialist world. I mean, there are, we, we chart a number of experiments towards this in the 1970s, the attempts to create international banks, socialist banks, non-aligned banks, new forms of currency exchange, new forms of trade and all sorts of things. And these things fall apart, you know, and at the core of the failure is this inability to overcome the nationalizing impulses of socialism. Of course, there's a more complicated story there, but I mean, that's, that's the key message, I think, um, from that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it is a series of national stories in many ways. Right. Yeah, really. Actually, that, that was what I really wanted to add quite briefly, that what, what James has just uh, broached was actually very nicely confirmed that, that communism at the end itself was also a national project, and not, not only in the sense that, that communist elites try to shore up their legitimacy on, on various cues of nationalism, but uh, but also that, that basically it was about the idea of, of, of modernizing nation states. Um, and that's what what uh, what the Eastern European national elites tried to export. And that was what actually proved to be for, for a relative uh, time period as, uh, as an appealing for, uh, for, for, for elites of the global um, thought as well. Um, and, I, and I also wanted to add a second brief points on, on, uh, on, on some of the differences that, some of the intra, intra block differences that, 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 for example, that, um, that uh, um, um, the fact that, that some of the Southeastern European countries, and especially Yugoslavia and Romania, were, were more prone to identify themselves with, with the developing world was, was also partly to be explained by the relative marginalization uh, inside the regions. I mean, for various reasons. Of course, Yugoslavia was in a way excluded um, um, after the um, um, the clash with with Stalin and and the breakup of the um, Soviet um, um, Eastern European expansion. But but also Romania was uh, was was partly marginalized uh, inside the the Eastern European uh, kind of Soviet type of political and economic integration and. Um, 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 how the, the Yugoslav non-aligned projects reflected Yugoslavia's um, um, intentions or, 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 or efforts to, to break up uh, from this relative isolation. Uh, so uh, the Romanian um, 
readiness to, to accept the status of a developing country uh, was also kind of a response uh, to this relative intra-block um, um, isolation or marginalization. Great, thanks so much for that. That's a very uh, rich discussion. And one thing that I think is really fascinating that you know you have all these countries which in a way don't cooperate with each other so much and you show that very nicely throughout the book and you really address uh, various themes right uh, development uh, warfare public health culture mobility the question of race and so on right things that that Peter you have uh, already uh, talked about in one of your earlier answers but what you then still get is somehow, at least in my perception, a relatively similar narrative arc uh, in, in pretty much all the chapters uh, you have, right? You have eight different authors contributing, you have a huge diversity of countries and of themes, but the basic narrative arc, I would suggest, is actually quite similar because every chapter diagnoses a certain decline or a certain move away from uh, east-west connections and correct me if i if i misread this but but i think you you do suggest that by the 1970s and especially by the 1980s there is a worsening uh, crisis and a reorientation of eastern european countries of course this may take different forms or or maybe maybe relevant to a lesser extent in the case of romania or of yugoslavia but nonetheless that's sort of the basic uh, narrative arc i think throughout the volume and in, in that sense, uh, what, what, what this, of course, shows is that the anti-imperialist solidarity uh, that was a big project after the Second World War was, was abandoned uh, in what you at some point call a new international anti-dictatorial front and certainly in favor of more Eurocentric perspectives again. And, you know, this, of course, also um, can be shown, for example, uh, in, in, in terms of military cooperation, right, where financial uh, benefits suddenly become much more important than the idea of kind of cooperation or or also when you look at mi migratory schemes right which at some point also uh, become uh, much much more marketized in fact already uh, prior to 1989 so in that sense i would say you know your book is obviously called a uh, socialism uh, goes global and you indeed show how socialism went global but it is also a story of growing alienation and of growing separation. So I think we should really discuss that. Why do you think this uh, anti-imperialist globalization, let's say this alternative form of globalization, actually declined already during the Cold War? And what might have been the cause uh, of this growing alienation and this growing separation? Uh, and then, of course, in connection with that, I'm trying to, of course, get you to, to talk about um, higher research findings may contribute to reconceptualizing 1989 and the end of soviet communism mm -hmm. okay um i think first of all if if, if one one has to or, or tries to um, kind of adequately address um su such complexities of, of of decline or or kind of distancing then uh then one has to understand uh the particular expectations what the uh various partners i mean particularly East Central Europe and the Global South um, um, invested into, into building these relationships. Um, and I think this is also important to, um, to state that, that it was basically, it was not, not necessarily a kind of a mutual alienation or, or, or distancing uh, um, um, from each other, but rather uh, it is probably more precise to conceptualize it as a, as a, a gradual withdrawal of, of, of the East Central European um, states from, uh, from these um, relationships. And I think it is, it, 
it is uh, to be explained at least partly, but but I think it is one of the most important factors. Um, if we if we understand that that basically most of the Eastern European elites and and and, and states expected a a kind of a, a, a changing um, international status or or a sort of a broadening of of international roles for for their own countries or for for their own regions, and especially in uh, uh, in their relationships to the uh, to Western Europe and North America to the West in 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 some ways, um, many many of the of, of these elites hoped that uh, opening towards uh, the post-colonial areas to to expand. Uh, National relationships uh, towards these areas uh, would uh, would offer them uh, means um, and resources to alleviate the um, economic and political dependence on uh, on the West, or or to or to uh, elevate the region as a as a um, possible competitors in an international international. Um, um, well, terrain and inter in, in the field of international relations too. Um, and there were various reasons, obviously, as, as it has been already mentioned a couple of times for the Soviet Union, the stake was, uh, was, was to, uh, to increase and elevate and, and kind of invigorate its, its great power status for the, for the smaller Eastern European states uh, to, to enter and, and, and uh, um, play a more dramatic role in, in international affairs. But, but 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 probably uh, what what is most important was was the hope that that um, exploiting um, and I think it is perhaps also also pertinent to use the word exploiting uh, uh, so exploiting the uh, these connections would would help Eastern European countries I mean so, small states um, to break away from from their perceived backwardness what what they perceived in. In, in terms of uh, industrializations in in their economic performance in their social and political institutions so 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 basically to uh, in a way to uh, to imitate um, um, conventional forms of colonization or colonialism and to to exploit the the, the resources both uh, both in 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 the very physical terms the the material and 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 raw materials from from these areas um, uh, also, the um, um, the possible um, labor exchange, um, what these areas could offer for Eastern Europe, that would, in a way, um, accelerate their uh, their modernization process, the, the modernization of the industries, uh, the effectivity of the economies, which, at the end, uh, would uh, help them uh, um, to catch up or even to compete with uh, uh, with the um, kind of the the core. Um, zones of uh, of Western Europe, and I think what what is actually important to note is is, is exactly in these in these fields there uh, there came a, a huge disappointment uh, um, around the 1970s when when many of the Eastern European elites started to um, uh, to, to to recognize and discover that that these relationships would would never meet their expectations. I mean. I mean, in 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 one sense, in in the field of economy, especially there there were a huge disappointment, uh, uh, where where especially economic elites um, now started to realize that, uh, that these relationships would never be um, um, so much profitable uh, for for themselves. Uh, they they could not provide as much resources or as much um, 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 profits and benefits uh, than than it had uh, uh, been uh, expected before. Um, and, and, and such disappointment 
um, opened up um, or, or, or provided kind of spaces to 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 reconstruct to reinvigorate uh, earlier um, um, kind of stereotypes, kind of Eurocentric stereotypes, even even some of the uh, the conventional forms of colonial hierarchies. Um, in in uh, in many cases, uh, the disagreements or or this disappointment with uh, with the global south was uh, conceptualized in 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 racist terms, um, accusing. Um, accusing the uh, the non-european peoples uh, of uh, of being lazy or being ineffective in work or or of uh, of, of simply being uh, um, um, unable to uh, to understand or or appropriate modern modern uh, uses of industrial uh, um, um, well labor techniques uh, or being uh, able to, to be integrated into into modern modern um, um, labor um, systems um, and that was also um, completed by the fact that, that by the mid-1970s, um, and especially due to the increasing debt crisis in, in the region, um, the Eastern European states were less and less able to, uh, to provide those resources that, uh, that the global um, um, south or, or, or national or nation-building elites in the global south would, uh, would have expected uh, from them. Um, so, the, so the previous um, um, ideas of of providing assistance in in terms of solidarity to providing expertise in in uh, in, in nation building in uh, in uh, uh, training uh, professionals for for nation building um, were less and less um, seemed um, profitable uh, or even um, or even uh, rational for for the Eastern European elites who who were more and more uh, concerned with 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 actually um, um, obtaining uh, hard currency and and obtaining um um economic or financial means to um, um to to somehow uh, breath uh, breath new life into their already uh, deteriorating um, um economies at home um and that's that that that's actually went went parallel um uh, in many ways with uh, uh you know, approaching uh, to the west uh, um uh, by the by the late 1970s especially economic elites but also political um elites started to realize that that, that a better um, and stronger integration with, uh, uh, with North American, Western European um, economic um, um, systems and market systems perhaps would be more profitable uh, for their own um, 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 economies than uh, continuing uh, um, um, the, the um, uh, earlier relationships with, with the global south. Um, um, so so in, in, in some ways, um, um, and that's, I think, already uh, leads probably to the next question. But uh, uh, but I think it's it's also important to um, um, to underscore here as well that uh, that that the transformation that occurred in 1989 uh, was was very much a multifaceted process. So it was not simply a, a teleological process that uh, that could be described in terms of uh, in terms of an Eastern Europe that uh, that had been uh, force, forcibly uh, isolated from from uh, its natural uh, connections to the West. And then slowly and gradually reapproached uh, its uh, its kind of uh, natural uh, geocultural homeland. But uh, but 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 to understand that that the approaching to the west went parallel uh, together with with a, a gradual distancing from uh, from the global uh, south, with uh, which is a fact which sheds uh, uh, light on uh, on the historical uh, liminality of uh, of East Central Europe as. As, as a region which uh, uh, which understands itself um, somehow situating in between a, a kind of a, a European um, 
core, European civilizational core, and a, a peripheral, um, um, peripheral economic and, and, and cultural status that, that also in, in, in many ways uh, opposes or at least tries to offer alternatives to the, uh, to the uh, core Western modernization. Just add to two provocations, maybe to, to Peter's uh, intervention. Um, so on the one hand, I absolutely, of course, agree to, to Peter's uh, uh, argument on the, the decline or the reframing of the relationship uh, between the Global East and the Global South uh, in the 1980s and how this has uh, then contributed to the kind of reconfiguration of the globality of the region in 89. On the other hand, what you also, uh, what we also find is that, um, of course, you have a decline of this anti-imperialist solidarity framing but in some respects also an intensification of relations. Uh, so when you, for example, look at the GR um, um, uh, connections to Mozambique or Vietnam, bringing in uh, labor uh, into a declining economy, you actually see numbers increasing of non-European labor uh, in the GDR, for example, that is a relation that is then uh, kind of interrupted when the wall came down. Uh, and that brings further complicates so to say the post-colonial story when the reunited Germany then says uh, to the Mozambicans, for example, that had to leave the country, uh, we don't recognize your claims uh, to be paid to the outstanding salary um, that has not been paid by uh, to you because of the ending of the GDR. So the United Germany does not recognize the claims of those Mozambicans. So it's a kind of um, legacy of a post-colonial relationship that is a socialist uh, relationship that is not included into the narrative of a uh, unified Germany, so to say. So that further complicates the story of actually a um, more intensifying uh, relationship in the 1980s that is interrupted by then. Uh, the Vietnamese diaspora, both in, uh, in the GDR, but also in other um, East Central European countries, is very interesting because it is also lingering on and kind of building infrastructures that are then further uh, continued after the wall came down, and they are those, so to say, the first entrepreneurs in the post-socialist landscape uh, in many respects. And they are the first victims of uh, East Central European uh, xenophobic attacks. Um, we are just were celebrating or commemorating uh, the 30th anniversary of Rostock-Lichtenhagen uh, and the, um, the incidents, uh, uh, the xenophobic incidents there, right? So it's a very kind of complicated story how you look at 89 and how you look at the 1980s and what's going on there. Um, and in some respects, but, but James can immediately uh, either contradict or add to that, uh, we also discussed 89 as uh, also a moment of, of deglobalizing the region again by, you know, disconnecting it uh, from those east-south geographies. Uh, but that's maybe something James can, can add to. Yes, absolutely. As Steffi has said, I mean, we wanted to get away from the idea of 1989 as this moment of sudden opening up of an isolated region. Of course, there are ways in which we can understand isolation, but in many ways it was not isolated. And this socialist story of socialist internationalism is very important in thinking about 89 as a shift from a particular international paradigm to another. And indeed, as, as Peter has said, it's not just 1989, right? It's part of a longer term process from the 1970s, which is about, in many ways, the gradual collapse of faith in an anti-colonial project and how that shifts the attitudes of um, of, of, of elites within the bloc. And I guess that that comes to a point that we really wanted to emphasize is that the ways in which Eastern Europe itself was reshaped by this relationship. 
and to think about the interconnections between this wave of decolonization in Africa and Asia in the 50s and 60s, and then the collapse of communism and the end, if you want, of Soviet empire in, um, in, in Eastern Europe. You know, what were the connections? So partly we were interested in exploring the ways in which actually decolonization massively internationalized um, the region's expert cultures. You know, opened them up to all many new ways of kind of economic, developmental, all sorts of different types of thinking, which then in the 1970s provides a very kind of broad ideological palette through which elites can critique their own system and actually start in some countries, not all, as you've said, I mean, probably Poland, Hungary are at the forefront of this kind of thing, actually starting to dismantle systems from within. So that internationalization, I think, is really, really key. Um, as I think has been highlighted already, this didn't mean no an end to these relationships, right? In many ways, I mean, you see this with the collapse of the Portuguese empire in the 1970s and a lot of Eastern European states thinking, how can we leverage our anti-colonial reputation to start having great economic links with countries coming out of Portuguese empire? How can we penetrate those markets? I mean, they start to use these kind of terminology. Um, and actually there's, in some cases, there are huge increases in the amount of um, uh, exchange through the late 70s into the 1980s. Um, you know, Yugoslavia massively expands, you know, pharmaceutical industries across Africa. Steffi mentioned the GDR plays an absolutely pivotal role in setting up the coffee industry in Vietnam, for example. So, you know, the, there are huge increases, but as people have said, they're under different ideological terms. And I think actually as Ferenc said at the beginning, it's, it's marketization as well. Um, and the debt crisis is absolutely key. As I said, hard currency is needed. It also splits the East and the South, right? The, um, the West insists that both sides pay them back. Um, the debts that Eastern Europe owes to the West, the, the Global South owes to the West. There are all sorts of debts the Global South has to Eastern Europe too, which don't get paid. So there's so much caught up in the debt crisis, which blows apart these ideas of internationalist um, solidarity. So people want hard currency, right? So when students come in the 1980s to the region, they start to be charged, not in all countries, but in many, they start to be charged in hard currency, right? This is a money-making opportunity. We've got good, solid educational systems here, which once, you know, for very little cost or for free, educated, you know, post-colonial elites. Now we can make money off this and we need hard currency. So there's a real shift. Um, the other point I wanted to make was about, was about resistance movements, dissident movements. Because, I mean, a lot of dissident movements come out of this anti-colonial movement in the 1960s. I mean, both leftist ones have become liberal, actually, by the 1980s, or sort of leftist liberal movements, things like Solidarity. You know, its leaders in the 1960s were kind of you know, caught up with this kind of anti-colonial struggle stuff. You know, our struggle against bureaucratic socialism and against, you know, against undue Moscow, Moscow's influence is just like the struggle of the Cubans or the Vietnamese and so on. A lot of this story is lost in the 1970s as these um, movements focus much more on the kind of the national story in Europe, but they often come out of these anti-colonial movements, something which is often forgotten in the history of dissidents. So there are all sorts of connections between, between this wave of the 50s and 60s and that which happens in the 1980s. There's a lot more I could say about it, but I think a kind of interconnected history is a really interesting way of going about it. No, that's fascinating. And I think one of the most interesting moments is when you show that even the Mozelevsky-Kuroin text is partly so impactful internationally because it actually draws 
uh, on a global frame of references, which otherwise doesn't happen so often. And I think we've been already discussing many uh, of the fascinating dimensions of this very complex and very intriguing uh, project. I think you've shown very nicely how substantial and how impactful many of these connections were. You alluded to, uh, to the fact several times that many of them may have been forgotten or also, and that's of course also quite ironic, that many of them may have been rather little known at the time, right? Partly because they didn't really take place uh, in a public sphere. I think the chapter on culture emphasizes that there, of course, more or less everything that happened was also publicly visible, but many of the other elements of the story were sort of a bit behind the scene and, and sometimes, of course, even intentionally so, right, when you have a, a Cuban uh, labor migration to, to a country like Hungary, uh, but these people are not really properly integrated uh, into society, but in some sense segregated into, into various uh, neighborhoods and, and so. So I think this leads me to, 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 ne to the next question. Uh, which is that, and, and this is something that I think you, James, in your chapter on the question of race emphasize very much, uh, is that even though there was this official uh, anti-imperialism, there was actually little self-examination of these countries, also in terms of the roles that they have played uh, in the longer history of imperialism, and that the, the anti-racism, which was, of course, also part of the official uh, ideology, if you wish, or part of the official views, it could be at, at times quite hollow uh, because the history of racism was essentially externalized, right? The West was racist, but, but not the East. You know, the West had to, had to confront its problem with the question of, of, of concerning the question of race, uh, but, but this had no direct uh, implications, so to say, for uh, these countries and, and so on, right? And, and you even underline, and this I found quite fascinating, that even while they were engaging under uh, the anti-imperial uh, label, uh, very often uh, nostalgia from the colonial kind of culture was, was creeping in and was sort of underpinning some of these projects, such as, you know, <laughs> Tito uh, going hunting uh, uh, in Africa. And, 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 and there are many, many other examples of, of that. So with that, I'm trying to introduce a large question once again, which is how I would, how I would assess some of the key tensions or some of the key ambiguities in these relationships. I mean, let, let us perhaps talk a bit about, you know, to what extent those long-standing hierarchies were in fact overcome uh, in these relationships or to what extent they actually reproduced uh, them uh, despite some of the specific features of these East-South encounters. Of course, this is, this is a really central question. And I think, as I mentioned before, I mean, both the propaganda of communist regimes, as you said, which is to say, we externalize, you know, racism to the West, which has a, you know, which, which um, has these beliefs because of legacies of colonialism and ongoing neo-colonialism. Um, I would also say, as I said at the beginning, that present day populist movements kind of reproduce a lot of these communist tropes today now about a kind of region free from you know, the sins of colonialism that um, are found in the West. Um, but it became clear, it was a really important question for us early on to say, well, actually, you know, how far do the legacies of imperialism, racism still shape um, socialist practice? And of course, you know, we pick up many of the voices, you know, from Maoists in China to, you know, West African leaders, all sorts of people who are constantly critical of the ways in which Eastern Europeans, you know, come across or work as white Europeans, white racist Europeans, right? 
we also, I mean, we're critical of those discourses too, right? We say, you know, those are also deployed as part of broader debates to try to reshape what Eastern Europe is doing or to take particular positions or build power on the international stage. So there's a much broader framework in which um, these questions about race are debated. At the same time, we didn't really want to say that anti-racist commitments were somehow false or worthless. Um, and we chart, you know, the multiple ways in which, you know, Eastern Europeans actually, in some cases, for example, Poles build on their experience of racism under Nazi occupation, for example, to start building very meaningful relationships with African and Asian states, which lead to important anti-racist work at the United Nations in um, the 1960s. But we want to stress the ambivalence, I think, at the same time, that these commitments are informed by a kind of you know, white saviorism, if you want, partly derived from early imperial fantasies. As, as Steffi said, you know, being the superior, potentially being the superior civilizers of the world. And so one way we do that, which, which you alluded to, is we chart that at the same moment that these, you know, that these political anti-colonial commitments are just spreading like wildfire across the block, at the same time, on the cultural level, we see this extraordinary explosion of publication, for example, of, of imperial adventure stories from the late 19th, early 20th century, new stories, you know, built around these themes, um, fascination with safaris, with hunting, with all these sorts of things. And, you know, so what we say, actually, there's a really, a really striking um, combination going on here. There's this anti-colonial, anti-racist commitment, which in many ways is very, very real, but it's motivated by a set of images and ideas about power um, derived from a colonial project, you know, and also about the desire to escape marginality as Europeans, because it's 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 partly about saying, you know, we we haven't been able to build empires, we've been kept on the margins of the continent, now we're able to play a global role, but increasingly, but somehow this appeal of imperial aesthetics comes back um, to inform that kind of fantasy that now we can be massively important international players. I think this has profound impacts by the end of the Cold War, um, because partly when these um, anti-colonial commitments begin to collapse, what you're left with is still this kind of white saviorism. I mean, if you want to go further, because I kind of, you know, anti-colonial white supremacy in many ways, which which leads to this idea of distancing, anti-blackness that uh, Peter mentioned um, before of the late socialist period, that white Europe is superior to black Africa. Um, and so I think not many of these kinds of ideas which went under the radar, you know, at the height of anti-colonialism were questioned. I mean, of course, communists didn't like to talk much about race. Race was a non-issue for them, you know, at a, at a political level. So this this can come back through into cultures in the late seventies and um, in the nineteen eighties. Great. You have already alluded to the fact that as you were researching and writing this book, the subject seemed to become ever more important, and also in a sense ever more contested from from various angles, not least because of the rise of a new type of anti-Western, anti-imperialism, if, if you want to call it that way, which is manipulated uh, in various ways uh, at the moment. But one thing that you then really uh, highlight uh, in the book, that there is the rise of what you would call provincial post-colonialism in Central and Eastern Europe. And this is quite 
a defining a trend at the moment, right? A type of anti-colonial language, one should say, that is really quite self-centered uh, and that, that in fact does not quite relate uh, to, the, to the experiences of the global south or might even be very much excluding the experiences of those people from, from any consideration in a, in a quite antagonistic way. So I was wondering whether as a kind of final question I could ask you about how you view the rise of this provincial uh, post-colonialism after 89 and especially in more recent uh, years. What does uh, your book, which again studies in a way the entire 20th century and a very complex, very rich story, how can this story help us understand what's going on uh, today? I mean, our book in part tells the history of the beginnings of that provincial post-colonialism, if you want, but partly this um, distancing from anti-colonialism of the 1970 feeds into dissident movements of the 1980s, which are all about a return to Europe. Um, and in some cases racialized, as we've said before, as a return to a kind of white Christian Europe as well. And that's very much a kind of reaction against decolonization and its perceived failures and the desire to um, head back towards the West. So we look, for example, at how particular dissident figures we've mentioned before, who embrace this broader internationalism, that the struggle of Poland against Moscow is the same as the Vietnamese or the Cubans, that's really gone by the 1980s. Um, that, for example, Solidarność, Solidarity, you know, the largest oppositional movement, a trade union in Eastern Europe in the 1980s, at its height has 10 million followers. You know, it, despite being a trade union, doesn't really have, you know, strong connections with anti-colonial movements around the world. It's a much more kind of Polish-focused or European-focused um, movement. I mean, there's an interesting story of its relationship, for example, with the apartheid movement in South Africa. And, and there are leftists within Solidarity who kind of push for these things. You know, there are trade unions protesting anti-apartheid. Why, why aren't we more involved in this? And partly they can't, right, because Warsaw is supporting the anti-apartheid movement, so it's seen as part of the, what the communists do. We can't do that. It's also interesting that there are many, well, not a decent number of Poles who leave Poland after martial law and go to South Africa, and they're then they're sending a lot of money back to the solidarity movement, right? And these are people who are not opposed to apartheid. So there's a lot of really complex and interesting stories about how this sort of provincialized nationalist um, struggle, post-colonial struggle happens. Um, so, so we tell the beginnings of, of, of this, but then I think if we want to understand how, you know, the absence of international internationalist solidarity um, as part of a kind of post-colonial resistance movement, and I guess we could talk about that through Ukrainian solidarity, right? how far that's seen through the prism of a broader internationalist solidarity, how much that's seen as specifically Eastern European um, concern. And of course, there are, there are people taking very different positions uh, on this. Then I think it's a story that goes back to this revolt against decolonization um, in the 1970s and this emergence of, I would say, kind of anti-anti-colonialism of provincial post-colonialism as you see it, which, which, which feeds through to now. Um, so I think we tell that at least the first part of that history is part of the book. Uh, I think probably what is also important to add uh, is that that 
So it, so it's this, this kind of provincial post-colonialism, which uh, which as, as Ferenc has just uh, emphasized in his kind of introductory remarks on the question that uh, one of the major content of, of, of these, well, kind of ideological current is, is, is being very much self-centered. So, I mean, um, uh, where, where the focus is on the um, alleged uh, colonization of, of, of Eastern Europe, which, which uh, speaks very little um, of the um, experiences of colonialism in, in the extra-European areas. I, I think that, 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 was not, that, that does not simply represent the shift from, from an alleged um, anti-imperialist international solidarity during socialism uh, um, to a, a much more nation-centered um, um, kind of self-centered isolation or more, more, more isolationist attitude, but, but it also represents a, a, a very important continuity. So, I mean, um, I think the book actually argues that, that, that in, in many ways, or at least partly, um, um, the Cold War era um, anti-colonialism or anti-colonial critic uh, was also very much self-centered. So, so, so what, what was important um, behind uh, um, um, the rhetoric or, 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 the, or the broader internationalist culture of anti-colonialism was, uh, was the experience of, of, of East Central Europe as, as either being, being colonized or, 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 or being pushed towards the periphery. Um, and therefore the focus was, uh, was very much on um, in the potential of uh, of of anti-colonial or expanding anti-colonial solidarity um, to a a possible um, um, kind of development, betterment, uh, or or elevating the international status, or how 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 Eastern European states or elites could. Uh, could play a much more prominent um, and, and, and powerful role in, in the international sphere um, 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 using these these sort of broader international anti-colonial status um, and and in that sense these this contemporary post-colonial uh, or provincial post-colonialism many ways actually continues these uh, these this previous content uh, of um, cold war era um, anti-colonialism just to um to add and maybe also to turn this into you know call for future research for anybody who's looking for out for more <laughs> um i think that this um what james described as this provincial post-colonialism is, is part of this broader story of what has been framed as the return to europe uh, of this region the efforts also of the post-socialist elites then to align themselves with the Western globalization project uh, again. Um, since uh, anti-racism, anti-imperialism has been an, a socialist elite project, uh, the resistance to it or the disentangling from it uh, was seen as part, be, becoming part of the Western uh, democratization project again, right? And but what this has produced is not only the disentangling of those East-South encounters and a deglobalization of Eastern Europe for quite some time, but also uh, a disentangling or deglobalization of regions in the global South as well. Uh, that's something what uh, Christina Schwenker has also described for the Vietnamese uh, uh, migrant workers, um, how much they have experienced uh, the 1990s as a, um, a reduction and a limitation of their, uh, their global outreach, so to say, and their mobilities, et cetera. And I think what might be interesting is not only to look into how 
uh, uh, post-colonialism in Eastern Europe is reframed um, across the ending of the Cold War and uh, to look into the legacies of what's going on before 89 into the 1990s, but also to look into post-socialism outside Eastern Europe, uh, so post-socialism in Africa, in Asia, etc., and to, to look into how those different post-socialisms are uh, entangled as well. Um, what we see in 2020 is, uh, um, I think, a confusion again in the West, uh, where you see Western journalists trying to order the world again neatly into East and West and to explain everything that's going on uh, in, in uh, actually in Cold War terms, that this does not lead so much into really understanding what's going on, but rather what we see again is an opening up of different you know, alternatives, how we can globalize the world, which uh, makes different you know, projects again attractive, the Chinese, the Russian, uh, the, the Eastern European uh, authoritarian, etc. So, and that's, I think, what we need to understand that we, uh, that we need to differentiate and see the nuances between uh, those different projects and not, uh, you know, um, have one large uh, theory, how we can explain what's going on uh, here. Excellent. Thank you so much for all these reflections uh, concerning uh, the current situation and also for highlighting uh, several possibilities of uh, future research. And thank you so much for the entire conversation, uh, Steffi, James uh, and Peter. Thank you, Ferenc, for the invitation. It's our pleasure. Ferenc, thanks very much for the invitation and uh, also thanks for the very careful reading of the book. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with three of the authors, James Mark, Steffi Mahung, and Peter Oppor, what, what, what is one of the most innovative research projects in Eastern European studies that has been conducted in recent years. I think it makes a really important contribution to the writing of global history as such. It's titled Socialism Goes Global, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the Age of Decolonization. It's a book that has been coordinated by James Mark and Paul Betts. Uh, it's the result uh, of the cooperation uh, between a host of researchers and, and eight main uh, contributors. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next time. <laughs>